This podcast is sponsored by Wakunaga of America, makers of Kyolic Age Garlic Extract, Kyodophilus Probiotics, and Kyo Green Powdered Green Drain Mix, all natural, healthy solutions to support your whole body well-being. Wakunaga is celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Wow, 50 years providing quality supplements backed by science. You can enter to win a year's supply of your favorite Wakunaga brand by heading over to their website, Wakunaga and enter the 50th anniversary celebration sweepstakes. That's W-A-K-U-N-A-G-A dot com. Good luck. I am always fascinated to read books about ADHD, and I just read an incredible book. It is called ADHD Medication. Does it work and is it safe? And it goes way into that, but also so many other aspects of ADHD. It is by our fantastic guest, Walt Karninski, MD. Walt Karninski, MD, is a developmental pediatrician trained at Boston Children's Hospital. He was director of the Division of Developmental Pediatrics at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida for 15 years. He then opened a private practice for 20 years, evaluated and treated children with ADHD, autism, anxiety, learning disabilities, and other developmental difficulties. During that time, he developed and operated three private schools for children with ADHD, anxiety, and learning disabilities. Over the 40 years he has been practicing, he has evaluated and treated close to 10,000 children, conducted numerous studies of brain activity in children, and has been director of a child abuse program and a program for enhancing development in children born prematurely. Dr. Karninski approaches each child as a unique individual with distinctive strengths and weaknesses, where the diagnosis does not matter as much as understanding the specific needs of that child. His new book is ADHD Medication, Does It Work and Is It Safe? Dr. Karninski, welcome to Health Power. Thank you, Lisa. It's an honor to be here today. I've been looking forward to it all week. Yes, I've been looking forward to it as well. You write in the book, this book is written for parents who want more than a simple solution to a complex problem. This book is written for parents who have questions but do not feel that they are getting all of the answers. Why do you think it's so difficult for uh, parents to get good answers and to the issue of ADHD? What it is, what is needed, medications. I mean, your book lays it out, but what do you think is going on when they're talking to other people? Well, it, it depends on who the other people are, whether they're um, friends or neighbors True. or they're physicians. Um, it used to be that many physicians would not even touch ADHD, that they would immediately refer a child with ADHD to a child psychiatrist. But I do think that uh, pediatricians are currently getting better training, better understanding of the disorder. They recognize that it occurs in 7% of the population, so in any given day, they'll see two or three children with ADHD in their practice. So they, they have to become more aware of it and more cognizant of the difficulties that it causes as well. And I think that is happening. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And what was so great about the book, too, is you do some of my homework for me. You ask great questions, and then you answer them. For example, ADHD seems like a recently invented diagnosis. Where did it come from? So give us some of the history. It was fascinating. Well, let me give you, go way back into history, uh, 100,000 sure. years, for, for instance. Uh, let's assume that you're a member of a tribe of cavemen. There's about 30 people in this tribe, uh, men, women, and, and children. 
And your job every morning is to go out and pick berries for the family's breakfast. So one morning you're hunched over that bush picking berries and all of a sudden you hear a rustling in the bushes behind you. What happens if you turn and look to the source of that sound and it's just the wind? If it's just the wind, you go back to picking berries and you get the berries back to the, to the cave and everybody's happy. And you're popular and you have lots of children with that distractibility gene. If on the other hand, there's a saber-toothed tiger there, when you turn and look, you pull your knife or you run and you get back to the cave. In both cases, it, you live and therefore have children and carry that distractibility gene to the next generation. So for 100,000 years, distractibility was actually something that saved our lives. And suddenly things changed in about the 19th century. In about the 1850s, we started saying to people, we're going to start forcing kids to go to school. Everybody should go to school and learn to read. Um, it used to be that a child learned how to take care of the, the family farm by working on the farm from the time that he was six years old. But now a child has to go to school for six hours a day. And that child who was picking berries 100,000 years ago is not going to do well in our current system. So the, the bottom line here is that ADHD may not actually be a disease. It is just a difference. And at one point it saved our lives. Now it's a, mis it's a mismatch between the way a child processes information and the way we teach information in the classroom. That child doesn't learn the same way that the teacher is teaching and therefore has difficulty. So that's my quick and dirty answer of, of, of why we see, uh, or why people question that that diagnosis. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Now you have uh, ADHD primary hyperactive slash impulsive type, ADHD primary inattentive type, and ADHD combined type. Now I had been told, like a friend of mine said, oh, my son has ADD inattentive type. Is that the ADHD primary inattentive type perhaps? Okay. Um, in the book, I do describe the whole history of uh, how we got to the current terminology. And it and initially, it was called attention deficit disorder. Uh, about 30 years ago, they added the term attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And, but, but virtually, they are the same thing. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why, or why the decision was made to add hyperactivity in there, because about a fourth of the children are not hyperactive. So if, if you have the inattentive type, you, uh, you only have difficulty focusing attention and difficulty remembering and difficulty with your organizational skills, but not the hyperactivity and the impulsivity that some other children do. As a matter of fact, girls are much more likely to have the inattentive type without the hyperactivity and the impulsivity. So the, the label of ADHD is really not the best label. Um, and I suspect at some point in the future, we'll see it change again. Talk to us a little bit about diagnosis. You have some great information in the book, and I want people to get the book, but just kind of touch on that a little bit. Well, before I answer that question, I'm going to answer a, a question I'm going to oh, pose sure. myself. And that is, why are there, why are there uh, those, those differences? 
let's let's take and why is there a difficulty diagnosing ADHD? Let's take a different disorder, a stroke. Let's say you just had a stroke, uh, and one eye is gazing to the left and one eye is gazing to the right. Your speech is slurred. You can't stand up without falling over. Your balance is discoordinated. Uh, you're, you're having a weakness in, in the facial muscles. One lip is, is drooping. Would you ever be, would you ever guess that maybe those symptoms are just normal behaviors? No, no you, would, you would assume that, that something serious is going on. But the problem with ADHD is that all of the behaviors that are part of the diagnosis of ADHD exist in all people at some point in time. So everybody forgets things once in a while. Everybody gets distracted once in a while. Everybody changes activities once in a while. Everybody loses things. Uh, everybody gets disorganized at, at times. And so the problem here is that the symptoms of ADHD occur normally in everybody, but the symptoms of a, of a stroke are so abnormal that you know you need to get into the emergency room as quickly as possible. So, so why are then 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 how do we know that those symptoms are really a, a problem that needs to be treated? Well, the way we do is, is that if those symptoms, the forgetting, the lack of organization, the inattention, the distractibility, if those behaviors occur so frequently that they interfere with a child's ability to learn in school, to form good friendships, and to live the life that he or she wants to live, if that occurs, then we have a problem. So in order to make the diagnosis, you must demonstrate that a, a, a majority of those symptoms are present, but you also must demonstrate that they are interfering with the child's ability to learn. And you must also demonstrate that they are not caused by something else, like a migraine headache or uh, uh, autism or some other disorder that might be causing some of the same symptoms. Once you've met those three criteria, then you have the diagnosis. But it takes a while to get to that point. Yeah, and does that usually involve a neuropsychological exam? Uh, it, it, it may. In some cases, a physician may take the history and find that the diagnosis is so classical and so significant and so severe that he can make the diagnosis without the testing, start treatment, and see a response almost immediately. But in most cases, uh, it is recommended that some diagnostic testing be done to rule out learning disabilities, anxiety, other things that might be causing some of the same symptoms. Now, tell us about Liz and Danny. Oh, great question. <laughs> one, one day I was um, interviewing a, a new family. The mother came in with her seven-year-old boy, Danny. Uh, Danny sat down in the chair with a kind of frown on his face, took out his phone, and started playing a video game. And so I started talking to the mother. And we talked for maybe about 10 or 15 minutes. <clears throat> and I suddenly re realized that she was getting close to tears. I was getting a little uncomfortable because she was getting uncomfortable answering the questions that I was asking. And at some point, I asked her a question, and she simply stopped and didn't answer she reached into her purse, pulled out a notebook, handed the notebook to me and said, 
this is a notebook that I have shared with my teacher and it goes with Danny into Danny's backpack every morning. Uh, when she gets to school at the end of the day, uh, Mrs. Miller will fill out a note and, and, and let me know how his day went. And then when I get home, I'll look at the note. I may comment on that. I may recommend. Uh, so, so she kept telling me that, that, that they were using this calendar notebook to communicate with each other. So I said to her, all right, well, uh, uh, let me take a look at this. I, it was 40 pages long, one page for each week of the, of the year. And so I, I said to her, let me, I can't read the whole thing right now, but let me just glance through it. So I began on page one and just started reading through. And the teacher said, oh, he had a good day today, but he had trouble paying attention. My mother got anxious. And, and by the end of the third page, I was almost in tears myself. And why? Why was I almost in tears? And it was because I had been treating ADHD as a clinical problem that I needed to add up all the symptoms, diagnose them like any other physician would. But I had forgotten the, the immense trauma and the uh, anxiety that ADHD produces in, in a child. Suddenly I could see it in this notebook. The reason I mentioned and spent so much time talking about the notebook is the notebook is chapter two of, of my book. And in, in that chapter, I pulled out individual pages so that you could see what the teacher said that morning, what the mother said that night, and what Danny told her about what happened during the day. Now, Danny's a fictitious name, but this is a real child and, and the whole second chapter was written by Danny and his mother and his teacher, not by me. Oh, however, I do then comment on each, each point that comes out. Uh, and I think it, it makes for a completely different way of learning about ADHD rather than looking at a list of symptoms. You see what actually happens to the child and to the parents and to the teacher. Yeah, I mean, it can have a real impact on their self-esteem a real negative impact. I know for a friend of mine whose son, all through elementary school, he and even into high school, he may have had one friend, but eventually they just were like, you're weird, and they would abandon him. And this, this, this trouble connecting. I have another friend whose son has ADHD. He doesn't have any friends. And talk to us a little bit about what's going on and why it can be difficult for, not all, but for some kids and teens with ADHD to connect with others. Well, okay, good, good question. Probably one of the most important questions. Um, <clears throat> let me tell you another story. Sure. Um, I, I one time, I one time saw a twelve-year-old girl. Uh, her parents brought her in, said she was having difficulty focusing in school. We did all the testing. We made a diagnosis of ADHD. I started her on medication. She actually had a good response to medication, but the parents decided not to treat her any further. With after about two weeks. Uh, they didn't tell me why. They didn't come back for a follow-up appointment. And so I didn't see that child again until five years later. Five years later, I was finishing my lunch, and I was looking at the list of new patients that were coming in in the afternoon. And her name was on that list, and I remembered her, her name. I said, why is she coming back to see me after five years? Well, she comes in by herself. She uh, didn't bring her parents. She drove. She's 19 years old now. And she said, 
Um, Dr. Karnesky, I'm a, a, a freshman at the University of Florida, and I know I'm smart. I, I have a high IQ, but I'm getting terrible grades. I just can't seem to focus. And I really felt that I needed to go back on that medication that you prescribed five years ago. And I said, well, okay, I'm glad to see, hear, see you again and glad that you're back. But what happened? Why didn't you come back and see me after you started the medication five years ago? She said, well, Dr. Karnesky, when you prescribed that medication, I hated you. I hated every minute of being on that medication. I said, well, why is that? Your parents told me that you were doing great in school on it. She said, yes, but my friends told me I wasn't as much fun to be around. We used to laugh and joke, and I was kind of the life of the party. And when I'm on that medication, I'm serious, and they didn't want to be my friend when I was on the medication because I was serious and not as fun as, as I used to be. And, and, and so we went ahead and started her on medication. She came back two weeks later. She said, Dr. Karnesky, things are great. Uh, things are great in school. My grades are all A's. Suddenly I feel like I can get the work done in an hour that used to take three hours. Things are really doing well. And I said, well, what, what happened to your friends? You said, that, she, oh, my friends now tell me that I'm a better friend, that I don't interrupt, that I don't listen. And, and, and they enjoy being around me now. So what changed between that 12-year-old and the 19-year-old? Did, did the 12-year-old's response to medication, was it different from the 19-year-old's response to medication? No. Both, both children, the 12-year-old girl and the 19-year-old girl, responded to medication the same way. What was different was the expectation of her friends. The 12-year-old friends wanted her to be silly and laughing and having a great time. The 19-year-old friends wanted to talk about something serious, and, and she would be easily distracted and not paying attention and not listening. Suddenly, she was a better friend on medication. So not only did her grades improve, but her relationship with her friends improved, which I would say in some ways is actually more important to predicting success in life than, is your, or than are your grades. I agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny. It makes me think about my my best friend when I was a kid, and she definitely had ADHD. I mean, every sign, but this was in the 70s, you know, in 80s. I don't think she was diagnosed, but she was a class clown. Oh, she was so funny. So I could see how this girl, when you're a young person, they're being like, why aren't you any fun anymore? <laughs> but at the same time. Exactly. Right. I love that story. That's in the book as well. And I, I think it really touches on something important. And I... I think it's hard, too, because, you know, like people think of me, you know, I've been in the health field doing this. I've been in public health for 25 years. I tend to lean on the, you know, the crunchy side, I you know, natural foods and all that. But my daughter's on medication, um, not for AD, her ADHD, but for something else. And I think that in the natural health world, there's so much stigma. And there's this, this assumption that, well, you just all these kids are put on medication. I mean, this must drive you up the wall. It drives me up the wall. It's like, first of all, you probably have a neurotypical kid, so shut the F up. I'm, I get annoyed. You know what I mean? Like, well, if you would just try this. No, no. You don't understand. You're not in our boat, and you don't know what you're talking about. But yet, they seem to be the loudest. Exactly. Right. So I understand exactly what you're saying. Do you have parents that say that to you? It's like, oh, you just want to over-medicate my kid and blah, 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 you know? 
Of, of course, yes. Um, one of the things, I guess there's a short answer to your question and a long answer, and, and I'll try to go, go somewhere in the middle to give, give the uh, best answer. There's, there's three, thing, three ways that we know that medication works and does something pretty dramatic. The first way is that every year there's published in the, in the, in the world approximately 300 to 350 research studies on ADHD and medication use. So we know a lot about the medications and what they do. And what those studies show us in the, in the majority is that the core symptoms of ADHD improve dramatically on medication. So that's number one. Number two is what happens to children when they grow up with ADHD if they're treated or not treated with medication. Well, a study was, a number of studies have been done over the last 10 years that really just blew me away. And I have known about the research for ADHD for 40 years, that this new research is, is really compelling. And that is that number one, if you take children with ADHD and scan their brain with a, a, a CAT scan or an MRI scan, you will find that there are three areas of the brain that are smaller than in children who do not have ADHD. The caudate nucleus, the frontal lobe of the brain, and the, the frontal uh, cerebellar striations. Those three areas are smaller in children with ADHD. Now, what do those three areas do? They help us organize, they help us focus our attention. Uh, the caudate nucleus is important for memory. Uh, every one of those three brain areas uh, affect symptoms that are seen in ADHD. But here is this, the stunning thing. Um, 10 years later, they brought these children back. They were now young adults in their, young, in their early 20s, and they scanned them again. But they asked them an additional question, and they asked them, were you on medication as a child or were you not? And what they found was that those children who are now adults who were not treated with medication still had the smaller areas of the brain. But the children are the adults now who had been treated as children with medication. They found that those areas of the brain were approximately normal size, implying that the medication is actually producing some change in the structure of the brain and the way the brain works to the point of bringing it back to... So you don't have to talk about whether ADHD is normal or not, or whether if it occurred in cavemen, how can we condemn children with it in the 21st century? But what we now understand is that there is a difference in the way the brain functions. And as a physician, I have a choice. I have three choices. I can, number one, I can invent a time machine and send Danny back in time to, to be a caveman again. Well, I haven't been very successful with time travel, so that one's out. Uh, the second option is I can change the way that children are educated in this country. And actually, I, th that's a big job, but I attempted to do that. I actually started three schools for children with ADHD and learning difficulties and ran those schools over the last 20 to 30 years. And that helps the kids. But the problem is once they left these schools, they still had to go to a college that was a regular college and taught the, quote, regular way. 
And then they had started having the difficulties that they didn't have in grade school because they were going to the special school. So that's not a good solution to the problem either. So the third solution is that I can give children medication. And, you, and your initial reaction should be, well, but that doesn't seem fair. If there's nothing wrong with this child's brain, why should he have to get medication? And the bottom line is because it works. And because if we don't give the medication, that child's going to have difficulty. Uh, there's been hundreds of studies of what happens to children who become adults who were not treated with medication. And let me just give you a list of a few of these items. I, I, I can't go down the whole list, but first, children are more likely to be retained in school. They're more likely to have lower grades with ADHD. As adults, they're more likely to change jobs frequently. They're more likely to have a poor job performance. Uh, they're more likely to quit a job impulsively. They often are earned ten to fifteen thousand dollars less than other individuals uh, with the same background and education. Children with ADHD, uh, when they become adults, are more likely to go bankrupt. They're more likely to use the credit cards more. They're more likely to have health problems. They're more likely to have fewer friends. They're more likely to have uh, difficulty in their social relationships and with their family relationships. They're more likely, likely to have a child born out of wedlock. And the list goes on and on and on. And not every child with ADHD gets these problems. Not every child gets every one of the problems. They may only get two or three of those. But the studies have shown that those children who, those adults who were on medication have those same difficulties in, in a different proportion. They have it in the same rate as the children who are not diagnosed with ADHD. So in other words, you can see a change in the overall core behaviors, the attention, the distractibility, and so on. You can see a change in the brain structure and in, in so that those three areas of the brain are no longer shrunken. And you see a change in outcome in life, in just about every sphere of life. Children with, uh, or adults with ADHD as children are more likely to be in car accidents. But if they took medication as children, and especially if they take medication when they drive, they have car accidents to the same frequency as somebody who does not have ADHD. So I guess the bottom line of all of that is the medication works. Right. And, and I want to get into that and why there's so many in a moment. But I have to say, I love the interaction you had with your dermatologist when she said, that's kind of overdiagnosed, isn't it? About ADHD. Tell us what you said. That was great. I, went, I, I see my dermatologist once a year, and I see the same dermatologist every year. One one day, I walked in in, in the uh, exam room, and there was a different physician there. She introduced herself, said, uh, "Your regular doctor is out of town today, so I'll be seeing you." And she said, "Oh, I see you're a doctor. What kind of medicine do you practice?" And I said, "Well." I see, I'm a developmental pediatrician. I see children with ADHD, learning difficulties, autism, developmental problems. She said, oh, ADHD, that's kind of overdiagnosed, isn't it? And I looked at her and I said, well, let me answer your question with another question. What's the incidence or prevalence of skin cancer in adults over the age of 50? And she said, oh, it's really high. It's about 30 to 40%. And, and, and I said, hmm. 
30 to 40 percent. That really sounds like it's overdiagnosed. Skin cancer must be overdiagnosed. She said, no, no, no. It's because people don't take care of their skin. They don't put sunscreen on when they go to the beach. Uh, they, they, that, 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 and then she's, oh, wait a minute. Now I see what you're doing. That was and great. what I basically told her, what I told her was that just because something occurs frequently, it has nothing to do with the validity of the diagnosis. It just, uh, uh, for instance, if you went home tonight and your husband told you that your next door neighbor had just been diagnosed with leukemia, you'd feel bad for Ed next door. And then if you found out that the, that the woman across the street also was diagnosed with leukemia two days later, and then and the down the street, three other people were diagnosed with leukemia. What would you do? Would you say, oh, leukemia must be diagno overdiagnosed? No, you would say, I wonder what's going on with those power lines behind the house. Or what can, what's happening in the water that we're drinking? So people don't question the diagnosis when you have an easy way to make the diagnosis. So with leukemia, it's easy to make the diagnosis. You look at a blood sample, it makes the definitive diagnosis. With ADHD, you have to spend hours testing that child, ruling out other disorders, and then even trying medication as a trial before we even diagnose, make the final diagnosis. So that causes people to doubt the diagnosis. Just because it's frequent doesn't mean that it's not valid. And just because we don't have a diagnostic tool doesn't mean that it's not a valid diagnosis. I think the, the research studies that we talked about early clearly demonstrate uh, that it is a medical uh, difference. You've probably heard how important it is to take probiotics. And trust me, you don't want to take just any. You want to take one that is backed by science. And the probiotic that my family and I take is Omnibiotic. These are targeted probiotics. They've got a highly effective powder delivery mechanism. They're clinically tested health benefits. They're vegan and hypoallergenic, and they're a leading European product. Let's get them to be a leading product in America. Omnibiotics' unique powder delivery mechanism ensures that 83% of good bacteria reach the desired area of the gut, compared to an average of 7% in top U.S. probiotic capsule brands. So my family and I use Omnibiotic Stress Release. Now, this is a psychobiotic formulation designed to support the gut-brain axis. And what that means is that this is looking at, at memory, cognition, improving your mood. And I'll just tell you... I saw an improvement in my mood and my daughter saw improvement in her mood and also a reduction in anxiety. And that is huge. When you can do something natural to help your brain, I love that. Not only is Omnibiotic incredible, you will get 15% off when you order through their website, www.omnibioticlife.com. Just use the code Lisa Davis 15. Check them out. Get Omnibiotic today. I'm telling you, it is a game changer. You want to go to www.omnibioticlife.com. That's O-M-N-I-B-I-O-T-I-C-L-I-F-E.com. This is so exciting. Oh, absolutely. Now I want to jump into the medication. You give a great history of medication and different types of medication. And then you asked a great question. Why are there so many ADHD medications? And you said, number one reason, because that's where the money is. And number two, evergreening. I had never heard of that. 
Uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about what that means. I know we don't have a ton of time and I do want to get into the different medications, but just touch on that a little bit. Um, and and it, that is a little bit of a complicated area and I'm not sure how I can do it in, in about three to five minutes, but uh, evergreening refers to a pharmaceutical company's ability to change a medication just a little bit just enough so it can be now considered a new medication by the FDA. And then, and then the pharmaceutical company, once it gets approved as a new medication, can charge a higher amount for that medication because it's a brand name medication and not a generic medication. But let me give you an example. Okay, uh, have you heard of a medication called Vyvanse? Okay, Vyvanse is one of the most commonly prescribed medications in the United States, in the world right now, for ADHD. Uh, and it, it starts out as a medicine called dextroamphetamine. Now, dextroamphetamine was present in the 1800s and has been used for treating congestion and a number of other problems. It was started using uh, it to treat ADHD in 1936. And I described that in the, in the, in the book. But... Dext dextroamphetamine is, is a chemical substance that reverses some of the problems that we talked about in the brain. However, what, what uh, Shire Pharmaceuticals companies did is they took that dextroamphetamine, they combined it with an amino acid. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And you take a little amino acid, you hook it onto the dextroamphetamine molecule, and suddenly, it's a new molecule. What does that, that do? Well, when you swallow it, the medication goes into your stomach, gets processed through the liver and into the bloodstream. And then the red blood cells pick up the medication, the combination of dextroamphetamine and the amino acid. And it cuts off the amino acid. And it releases that medication to the brain. Now, there's an advantage in that, in, in that to the drug company. This is a brand new medication, but, and so they go to the FDA, they get it approved as a new medication, they call it Vyvanse, but it's really the same medication that's been around for 80 to 90 years and it's trying to be effective because once that amino acid gets pulled off the molecule, it's dextroamphetamine, it's what they started with. Do you, do you see what the, 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 the conundrum here it is that the drug company now has a new medication that uh, that they can charge three times or ten times the cost of the dextroamphetamine, which is available for next to nothing at, at most pharmacies. And, and, but now in the process, so so they get to charge that, and they get to they have a a patent on that medication for the next five to seven years, and sometimes they can even stretch that out for twenty years. Nobody else can make Vyvanse except for Shire Pharmaceuticals until that, that, that period of time has passed. And during that time, they can charge $300, $400, $500 per month for a prescription that you get for the same medication you can get for about $10 a month. And it, but in the process, we found that Vyvanse actually has two advantages. Number one, that whole process of taking that amino acid and, and taking it off the molecule, that takes time. So it may, means that, that Vyvanse takes effect gradually and wears off gradually and lasts eight to nine hours 
whereas dextroamphetamine only lasts four hours. So that's one advantage. Second advantage is that it is prescribed now for children who might give this medication to their friends to abuse. So for instance, if you do not have ADHD and you crush up a pill of dextroamphetamine and snort it, you'll get a little high from it. But, but however, if you, if you crush up Vyvanse because it's hooked to that amino acid and you snort it, nothing happens. So if you think there's some abuse potential, you can prescribe Vyvanse. Now, that doesn't mean you should prescribe Vyvanse in every child, like some physicians are doing. And some physicians prescribe it as the first medication of choice for every time they diagnose ADHD. There's no reason to prescribe the most expensive, one of the more expensive medications when the cheaper medications do exactly the same thing. Well, that was kind of a long-winded way of explaining. No, I, I thought it was question, great. But that's, ever, that's evergreen. Ever, so there are two medications that are used to treat ADHD. Methylphenidate, which we find in Ritalin and Concerta, Metadate, many other medications, and dextroamphetamine. And we find that in Adderall and Vyvanse and many other medications. But there's really only two medications that are in the stimulant group. And however, the evergreen has resulted in 36 medications, 36 brand name medications to represent those two generics. And every one of them is, they charge differently for, they prescribe differently, need to know about the differences in, in how to use that medication. And so it, it, it complicates the field, but it also gives the physicians some freedom to creatively use these medications in such a way that is as ideal for a given child. So one child might need the medication to last 10 to 12 hours because he's in college and has a seven o'clock class, whereas the next child is in grade school and is finished by three o'clock and maybe his medication should wear off at 3.30 or 4. So it, there's many choices benefit the drug companies but they also benefit the patients by giving the physicians the option of prescribing many other different forms of the medication to get the same results. I would think that the problem could come in with Evergreen, though, is that it sort of feeds that paradigm of the drug companies are just greedy as hell, and they just get all their pretty reps in there and giving you, taking you to dinner and giving you this and giving you that and influencing you and you're prescribing a $400 drug when you can be prescribing a 10, unless it's really needed, right? And there is going to be some, I would think there's going to be right. some complication and some anger at pe you know, for people when I'm like, why are there so many ADHD medications? That's why I wanted you to explain evergreening. I'm not saying it's evil across the board, but I'm, it makes me a little bit like, well, I don't know. But I hear what you're saying. I do want, I just, I'm just trying to play the devil's advocate. Or I would think people listening might be like, that's like, what if your doctor is like wine and dine by these people and they're not going to look at a lower price drug because they want all the perks of these vacations? Well, let me tell you, when Vyvanse, when Vyvanse first came out, uh, the drug company invited me to come, come down to the Bahamas to right. stay at the, um, uh, what's the big hotel in the, in the Bahamas? I know what it is. Uh, Atlantis. The, the paradise. Atlantis. We, we stayed at the Atlantis for three days. There were 600 uh, pediatrics, uh, psychiatrists, neurologists, and developmental pediatricians invited to this event. Wow. They brought in the best speakers in, in the world, the best researchers in the world. They really did do a good educational conference. 
But every great. night there was an open bar. There was dancing. The, during the day, I mean, we would listen to lectures for three hours and then go scuba diving uh, or, or, or dancing out on the lawn or whatever. Uh, the next, so the next, I mean, and I actually did learn a lot from that, from sure. the experts that they brought in. But the next morning, I show up and they say, oh, you need to go up to room 16. So I go up to room 16, and there's about 20 other physicians in there and one representative from the drug company. And he sits down with everybody and says, now, is everybody having a good time? And everybody cheers, and yes, we're having a great time. He says, okay, today your task is to determine how Vyvanse can be used as a medication of first choice. And we said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I mean, it's, it's a medication that's, that's effective, and we know it's effective and it treats ADHD, but physicians aren't prescribing it first. They're prescribing Ritalin first or Adderall first, and then they might move to Vyvanse. So we want to come up with some ways of getting physicians to prescribe it first. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, I'm not sure I would prescribe it first. It's, it's an expensive medication. It doesn't have any other advantages unless there's an abuse potential. So I would start with a, a medication like Adderall or Concerta, and only if we need to go to something that works longer or if there's abuse potential would I prescribe Vyvanse. I never got invited back to those meetings again. <laughs> I was about to say, that guy's face must have been like in shock yeah. and pissed. Well, right, and because I, and, and he didn't, he didn't want to, he didn't want to hear the truth. The truth was that we didn't necessarily need Vyvanse to be a medication of first choice, and yet it still is, and it's still prescribed frequently, and it's still expensive. And the book goes through every one of the thirty-six medications. It's amazing. And talks about lists the, the their advantages and disadvantages. So one of the things that will happen. Is, uh, parents might not read about all 36 medications, but if their doctor has put their, their child on Vyvanse and then decides to switch to Concerta, they can pull the book out, look at the, at the three pages on Concerta, and learn why that medication is different and what it's going to do to them. And maybe in the process, they'll find out about a new medication that came out last year that their physician doesn't even know about. They can then ask about it and see if that's right for their child. And that's why people have to get the book, because... It goes through everything and all the different medications, and they're not all stimulants. I think people are surprised. I like that option. Just tell us a little bit about those options, because I think we, people just mostly hear about the stimulants. Right. I mentioned there are 36 stimulants, but there's also 10 medications that are non-stimulants. They're not methylphenidate or amphetamine, like I talked about before. And these medications work a little bit differently in the brain. I won't go into how they work. The book sure. goes into detail about that. But I, I'll simply say they work differently. And in the, in the process of working differently, they treat hyperactivity and impulsivity as effectively as the stimulants do. But they do not treat the attention problems as effectively as the stimulants do. So physicians oftentimes give these medications for younger children and only for the older children when they have start having trouble focusing attention. So they, they give it to the children that are hyperactive and impulsive. When they need it in first and second grade for attention, then they'll switch to a stimulant. Oh, the I advantage see. of those other medications, the, the, the medications like Catapress and Tenex and, and Intuitive and other non-stimulants, is that they don't cause the same side effects that the stimulants do. And as a matter of fact, 
every side effect that can occur with a stimulant can be treated with one of the non-stimulants. So for instance, um, the stimulants cause uh, difficulty sleeping, they cause irritability, and they, they sometimes cause other symptoms as well. And the catapress and 10X and those medications, the non-stimulants, treat sedation. Their, their side effect is sedation, so the child's able to fall asleep more easily. Uh, it, it treats the irritability. So most children who get irritable as the medication's wearing off at the end of the day don't get that with those other medications. So the physician has a choice between these two different medications that work differently, uh, they work in the same symptoms, but produce different results depending on how severe those symptoms are in, in each child. So catapress might be the perfect medication for one child, but be the wrong medication for next, the next child, both diagnosed with the same diagnosis of ADHD. Right. Well, that's why your book is so important to have because it, let's say you go to the doctor and you're and they want to put you on the most expensive medication and you're like, well, wait a second, let me see. What about this one seems very similar. And, you know, Susan gets out of school at three o'clock. She doesn't need it to go nine hours. So can we look at this? Right. So it's almost like, I mean, it's it's having like you're in their pocket, doctor. You know, <laughs> Here he is. I mean, it's it's really amazing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I point out frequently that in, in when I talk about the medications that uh, when I'm explaining to this to to a parent, I'm not doing it for the purpose of letting them take over the role of the doctor. They shouldn't be adjusting the dose of medication or treating their child with twice the dose of medication without the doctor's approval and understanding and explanation. And if that doctor doesn't seem to be able to answer the questions, in the rare cases where that occurs, and then, then they can try seeing a, a specialist in the area, a neurologist or a psychiatrist or a development pediatrician. Right. And if your doctor, in any situation, I always tell people, if you feel like your doctor's not listening to you, then, or they're not understanding, then you need to find a new one. Exactly. And I, I don't like to, to say that, but, and I think that there's a small percentage of doctors that don't have the background and training of this. Well, you know, a doctor cannot be an expert in every disease. Oh, sure. In every process that occurs. So uh, some doctors might be, uh, some pediatricians might be experts in dealing with asthma and congestion and, 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 and other uh, lung problems, but not be as well-versed in ADHD. Uh, my daughter's a, a pediatrician. She, she's in a practice of 11 pediatricians. And each of those pediatricians tends to have an, a niche, an area that they... Um, tend to, to be able to treat better than the average pediatrician as well. Right. Well, you're a developmental pediatrician, right? I mean, a, 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 I think if somebody's having this yes. kind of issue, they should try, if their insurance covers it, or if they can afford it, to see a developmental pediatrician, not just a regular pediatrician who might not know anything about neurological issues. Right, right, right. However, there aren't as nearly as many developmental pediatricians trained. There aren't as many training programs as there are psychiatrists and neurologists. So for every developmental pediatrician, there might be uh, five pediatric neurologists and five um, psychiatrists. Um, so if availability is sometimes a problem. The difference is a developmental pediatrician has been trained in both neurologic issues and psychiatric issues. So they look at both the, the in, internal neurology and the way the brain's working or not working 
as well as the environment that that child's been exposed to. A neurologist tends to focus on just the neurology. A psychiatrist tends to focus on or primarily on the emotional aspects of things. And so at least we claim to be able to be somewhere in the middle and focus both and recognize that every problem in children can, can have both a neurologic cause and an environmental cause. Right. Uh, the time goes by way too quickly. I mean, there's so much. I want to have you back because I really want to talk about, uh, you say this is, well, we're going to talk about it for a moment at least. Uh, chapter 9, comorbidity, ADHD does not dance alone. I know that for certain with my daughter. Uh, this chapter is one of the most important chapters in the book. And you talk about ADHD with oppositional defiant dis- behaviors, mood disorder, anxiety, tics, um, OCD, sleep disorders, learning disorders. I mean, it really goes hand in hand with a lot of these things. And I would love for you to come back and focus on that because I have a lot of listeners that have, you know, kids and teens that have more than ADHD and it can make it different with medication because like, okay, so I want to treat the, you know, sleep disorder, but then this is a stimulant. Okay, then you mentioned I can add the, you know, 10x, but what about learning disorders or what about, you know, NVLD or autism or, I mean, it, it gets complicated. It, it, it absolutely does get complicated. Uh, and I would love to come back and talk about that. I, that would We could probably talk about just that one topic for an hour alone. Uh, yeah, that because would be really, in, in a sense, yeah, if, if you look at some of the, the comorbid diagnoses with ADHD, what that means is that they're diagnosed frequently with ADHD, but they're not part of ADHD. So oppositional defiant disorder is one, anxiety is another, obsessive compulsive behavior is another, uh, tics, uh, autism, and so on. But each one of those occurs more frequently with ADHD symptoms. So the question is, when a child's anxious, is that child anxious because he's got an anxiety disorder and needs to be treated as an anxiety disorder, or does he have ADHD, which causes him to have difficulty focusing and paying attention, which makes him anxious? And, and in both, and the, the reason it's important to make that distinction is the medications that are used to treat ADHD make anxiety worse. And the medications that are used to treat anxiety make ADHD worse. So now what do you do? That's complicated. We can talk about that the next time. Yes, definitely. This has been incredible. The book is amazing. ADHD medication, does it work and is it safe? You can live a healthy, wonderful, crunchy life and still have your child or yourself take medication. All right, Dr. Karninski, tell us all the places we can find you and your great book. Well, right now there's two main places that you can find the book. One is on Amazon. It's uh, the, the book was published in the middle of our end of May, so it hasn't been out that long. It's not yet in bookstores like Barnes and Noble or whatever. So you can get it through Amazon, or you can get it directly from the publisher, uh, and that's Roman R O W M A N Littlefield dot com. Uh, and you can actually buy uh, direct from them. I've talked to a few people who purchased from them, and they actually found that you could get a, a, a discount uh, through the publisher as well if you do. Uh, actually, the next time I'm here, I'll bring that code and oh, let everybody great. know about it. 
That would be awesome. Well, Dr. Karninski, this has been fantastic. Everybody, please keep coming back to Health Power and rate, review, and subscribe, and have a great day. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you, and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.